things that are a little bit more on the human sciences or whatnot, right? If you bring all of the skills under one umbrella, then you really have an opportunity to use AI, use machine learning in a way that benefits everybody. So catastrophic forgetting is something that happens when you dynamically train a model like online learning style. And basically like a, mm-hmm. at some point your model starts understanding really well a concept or let's say a class or whatnot, right? And suddenly you add this little bit of additional data and then the model forgets. Mm-hmm for the benefit of something else, right? According to OpenAI and Sam Altman himself, basically like we're going to run out of data by like 2025, 2026, right? The information that lives in model that you can use to generate typically is the information which you grabbed from the training data. Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to Future Product. My guest today needs no introduction, but I'm going to introduce her anyway. You might already know her from LinkedIn, one of her many speaking appearances. She's the godmother of data prep ops. That's right. My guest is Dr. Jennifer Prenke, founder and CEO at Electio, inventor, researcher, AI wartime strategist, and a lot more. Jennifer, would you mind telling us a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, you sort of like explain at the high level already, like what I think people like should know, right? I mean, so so uh, mm-hmm. basically like maybe going like a, a little bit further into my past. So what a lot of people don't know about me is that, uh, so I'm a scientist, but I'm a particle physicist by training. So, you know, like uh, one of the topics I think, and mm-hmm. I hope we're going to cover today is the impact of science in uh, yeah. in AI and machine learning, right? Uh, and uh, yeah, I I mean, so basically, like I uh, eventually like uh, became like a, you know, like a, an AI uh, person, a machine learning scientist with a mm-hmm. very heavy focus on the, you know, like a scientific aspect of uh, everything that we do. Right. Uh, I am currently like uh, the CEO and founder of uh, my own company, which I started like a uh, more or less four years ago, which is specifically focused on, as you said, like data prep ops. Even though when I started the company, like uh, the term did not exist yet because uh, I came up with that mm-hmm. a little bit later. Right. I mean, so basically, like, see that as being like the, uh, you know, like the, the the full automation of the preparation of an AI training data set for any application. So, yeah, I mean, a pretty deep topic. Got it. Very cool. So, yeah, we have a, a lot to cover, but um, I want to start kind of with that first point that you made. So, your original background was in particle physics, right? Um, would you mind talking about how you? What made you make the jump to, you know, data and AI um, as Absolutely. a subject? Absolutely. So kind of it's sort of a complicated story, but I think it's an interesting story. So I'm I'm basically like, so being like, a, you know, like a, a physicist, a particle physicist or an astrophysicist, basically. So I have a training in both, right? I mean, so was my uh, lifelong dream, basically, like as far as I can remember, I was drawing pictures of myself with a, with a telescope or in a lab, right? I mean, these sort of things, right? Uh, and so basically, like, so uh, I naturally, really got to the point where I got my PhD in particle physics, right? Uh, and my, my goal was always, you know, like basically like understanding the universe, understanding like uh, the various phenomena around us, right? I mean, like pretty much any any scientist like uh, who really, really wants to do things for the right reasons, right? I mean, if you want to put it that way, right? I mean, so uh, I always had a very curious nature. I always like to question everything that was, uh, you know, like up, up happening around me, right? Uh, and so I eventually graduated with my PhD. PhD uh, in 2009, so basically like just in the heart of the 
Great Recession, right? I mean, and so basically, like at that time, as you can imagine, like uh, getting any sort of funding for fundamental research was really, really hard, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so uh, and so of yeah. course that that was a huge heartbreak for me. Like in fact, I specialized in a concept called CP violation, which is the study of the asymmetry between matter and antimatter. So fundamentally, it's uh, understanding like why the universe actually exists and uh, did not get annihilated at the at the time of the big bang right uh and uh yeah i mean so basically like uh, i was looking like for a very specific type of like a particle accelerator with a very specific you know like uh, you know like we're not talking any funding like back in the days in fact like the search for the higgs boson was sort of like the the topic of the day and so that was not the one thing that was really like the most interesting to me right uh and so mm-hmm. uh so i eventually did a postdoc with you know like a focus on this uh, this area of uh, uh cp violation so uh eventually like i reached the point where you know like uh, it doesn't look like the type of research I want to do is really going to be funded anytime soon, right? So I, I eventually like realized that you know what, um, what I really care about is like using math and understanding the world, right? I mean, and so uh, and so mm. another aspect of that is of course like understanding human intelligence, right? I mean, so basically like uh, right. so uh, you know like I, I started realizing like I have this uh, those amazing like a uh, data analytic skill which I used and overused as you know like a particle physicist. People don't necessarily realize, but the life of a particle physicist is a uh, generating or collecting a lot of data and then basically like finding uh making sense of it right i mean so basically it was a very 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 similar like in many ways to what you do when you're a data scientist right i mean so basically i made what Mm -hmm. is actually sort of a natural move for a lot of people with my background especially in the days uh to to go into machine learning right think back in the days like it was like that was like ai machine learning was not a natural topic that was even available for study uh even at large universities cities right? right i mean so basically like in fact if you go back with people who have like a anywhere like more than like 10 15 uh, years of experience in the domain right i mean so mm-hmm. you have very very few people who actually have a background or uh you know like a, in, a, in actual machine learning or uh, even like probably computer science but like uh, so it's it's not mm-hmm. as typ- atypical as it seems right i mean so i think like uh, for somebody who has a deep passion for for science and for math it actually makes a lot of sense to do what i what i did <laughs> Yeah, you know, makes sense, right? I mean, in the sciences, you're like you said, your job is to collect data and then find, you know, learnings from that data, right? That's very similar, like you pointed out to a data scientist. I mean, it's basically the role. Um, so concretely, kind of what was the the transition that you made when you wanted to get into data analysis? Yeah. Um, was that changing your, yeah. your research track? Did you go into So I, I basically, what, what kind of basically what happens is like, so part, like, you know, like again, paradoxically, like when I started, I started realizing like, this is a really mighty path for me to explore, right? I mean, so basically back in the days, like uh, uh, the, the finance track was sort of like a place where they would hire like mm-hmm. a quantitative analyst, people who can do math, people who can do like data science research and whatnot, right? Uh, at, at tech was also like a pretty hot back in the mm-hmm. days, right? Uh, and 
And uh, so uh, when I started looking at like what the interview questions might be to get a job in this space, like I realized like, oh, mm-hmm. I've done that before, right? I mean, our basically like the only difference is like, this was not the same type of data or it was not the same goal eventually, right? But basically I realized that mm-hmm. in terms of, uh, you know, like a, a data, data preparation and basically building models, like, a, you know, like a, uh, establishing like basically mathematical formula or whatnot, it was very, very similar. However, the problem is the interviewers did not necessarily, you know, like uh, get the point that, you know, like, oh, that girl actually like used, you know, like uh, I actually mm. like use deep learning neural networks in the context of, uh, you know, like particle physics research, which was like a mm. very, very like a uh, special back in the days, right? It was not something that uh, everybody was using, right? Uh, and uh, I was one of right. the, the first people to actually see the potential of doing that, right? Uh, so I, I started mm. like more like reformulating basically my value proposition, my skills in a way that would appeal to the industry and specific industries as opposed to like uh, just physics, right? I mean, so I think uh, when I look at people who want to do the sort of our, our, you know, like operate the same move like today, right? I mean, so I don't necessarily think you need that much, you know, like a retraining or whatnot. It's just like a reformulation of your mm. skills, uh, both on the paper, right? I mean, so basically like a rewriting your resume in a way that, you know, like you don't necessarily like a right. put too much emphasis on like how or what you've used like a, uh, your skills for, mm. but basically like uh, the fact that you do have those skills, right? Uh, at the same time, there are some nuances that you want to be wary of when you do this, right? I mean, so basically, like, was a, wasn't actually like a, a very huge problem for me to eventually like uh, articulate the fact that you know, like, I do indeed have the skills that are required for data scientists. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think that that's becoming a more common thing, right? Is people who um, go into school. They specialize, they learn things, and then they have to apply it to a different kind of sector when they get out into the working world. So like for me, it was economics, right? And then came out into the world, applied that to digital marketing. And I think that that kind of gets lost as a track. People expect that... You know, you train for one thing, you learn one thing, and then you do it, yeah. right? But I definitely I, think I actually, I would, I would actually changed. even elaborate a little bit more on that, right? I mean, so two points yeah. here. So first and foremost, so, you know, like both for a master's or a PhD, like I think what you really learn is, uh, again, the ability of like uh, questioning things, establishing a mm. research plan or whatnot, right? I mean, so basically like a, I, I see absolutely no difficulty for somebody who has trained to do research in economics, in finance, uh, in biochemistry or whatnot, to basically like a transfer those skills. In fact, I wouldn't even say it's a transfer, right? I mean, because like you're really, you're really like mm. learning like a, you know, like a, a scientific questioning, scientific method, right? I mean, basically like a design of experiments, right. which I think that uh, is an extremely valuable skill uh, in, a, you know, like basically uh, uh, in data science or whatnot, right? I mean, so basically. Uh, I, I don't even think it's a, you know, like such, I wouldn't even qualify that as being a job. It's like, a, mm. again, a reformulation, right? Uh, the, oh. the other thing that I also think is very important is like, when you look at the world today, right? I mean, basically, like when you look at uh, uh, AI research labs, right? 
uh, and many companies basically like are taking this direction of uh, multi-disciplinarism, uh, right? I mean, so basically like what they're trying to do is mm. also hire experts from different areas, basically with the belief that, you know, like uh, uh, somebody with an expertise in like uh, uh, neurology, sociology, so like, you know, like ethics, mm. right? I mean, even things that are right. a little bit more on the human sciences or whatnot, right? If you bring all of the skills under one umbrella, then you really have an opportunity to use AI, use machine learning in a way that benefits everybody, right? I mean, so I think uh, as mm. much as you say, like basically it's becoming more common for basically people to make that sort of like transition and jump or whatnot. I also think that there is a lot more, you know, like a appetite from many companies, especially the advanced research labs to basically like hire people with a different backgrounds, unexpected backgrounds, right? I mean, if you I see. Gotcha. Gotcha. No, that, that makes a ton of sense. Right. Um, and it, and it kind of also plays to the strength of the models, right? I mean, they're very multidisciplinary by mm -hmm. nature, so it, it makes a lot of sense. So one thing I want to talk about, um, you are the pioneer of data prep ops, right? So was this something that you built up kind of from your experience, you know, in physics going forward and, and going into this new kind of realm, seeing that this was a problem that needed yeah. solving? That, I love that question. So this is like, a, again, like I think uh, this is a story I don't tell like frequently enough because people like usually perceive like this is something that came up relatively recently, right? I mean, in fact, I've been mm. speaking about that problem in the industry for like, what, like six, seven years now, right? Uh, so it's like, mm. and, and you know, like it's, it's become like, top of mind for people like very, very, very recently, right? I mean, specifically with generative AI, mm -hmm. I'm going to say, right? But actually, you're absolutely right. right. That goes back to my physics days, right? I mean, so basically, like, I think I think mm. I have a very interesting story to tell about this, right? I mean, so so when I did my PhD, yeah. right? I mean, so basically, like, being an experimental particle physicist, what happens is that uh, you're part of what you call, like, um, uh, uh, a collaboration, right? I mean, so basically, a collaboration is a group mm. of, like, between 200 and, you know, like, 2,000, basically, like, a, a particle physicist station, like, all over the world, right? And they all work with that the same particle accelerator and particle detector, right? I mean, so basically, like there are very there are very few of these in the world right i mean so the one that i was associated with was an experiment called the babar experiment uh based in slack so basically in the stanford linear accelerator center in california right uh mm -hmm. so in stanford right uh and so basically like so the agreement with specifically phd students is like you can do your phd using that uh, experiments data, but you have to collaborate, mm -hmm. right? I mean, so basically you have to participate in data collection, uh, you know, like tuning of the uh, data collection process, right? I mean, cleaning of the data, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, right? And so I actually, so basically what they made you do is like, you have to be stationed over there. So basically like at uh, the site of the experiment for a couple of months, right? And so my responsibility mm -hmm. uh, during that time, which was in 2008, uh, was basically like a part of the detector, which which was you know like a you know like a specialized on like a you know like a uh, basically like that decay I, I mentioned earlier right I mean, so measuring like mm -hmm. a, a mm -hmm. speed of particles and whatnot right I mean so not super important for that conversation right but what was important is that I got there January twenty like a two thousand eight and that's when the recession mm -hmm. started right I mean so basically what happened is that uh -huh. the DO um, the DOE originally had plan to run that experiment mm. for an additional like uh you know like three years or whatnot right and then basically they said like mm. you guys you have a couple of months to finish up right and so i was going oh, wow. there with the intent of like you know like 
going slowly, gradually collect data, what right. guess what happened? So all of the senior researchers on that experiment basically decided like, we're gonna uh, increase what you call the luminosity of the accelerator. So the luminosity is basically the number of uh, collisions you cause, right? I mean, and so what you oh. do is like you increase power, you increase collision. And so mm -hmm. that becomes very messy, right? I mean, so basically, like suddenly we had six months to finish up everything, right? And uh, so I started working mm -hmm. on the maintenance of the system, which was a disaster because, of course, like the system was not prepared for that magnitude of like, you know, like amplification of the signal or whatnot, right? I mean, and so, and then I was working on what you call the reconstruction of the events, right? I mean, so basically what happened mm -hmm. is like, you take the raw data, which in this case is electrical signals in the particle detector, right? Uh, and basically what you do is like, basically you try, you try to reverse engineer what might have happened in terms of like particle decays, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And so what I did is like for the run, basically, which I was responsible for, I mean, like, we have so many collisions, but when I reconstruct the useful events for research, there's much less interesting data, right? I mean, so basically it's like the oh. fact that you, you're like basically like, so I, I had my first experience with like volume of data doesn't matter if you have junk information in there, right? I mean, so I really started right. developing. And so, you know, like I, I had lots of stories of like me actually arguing, we can't do that. This is not going to work. We're not getting mm -hmm. as much useful data. We need to change the reconstruction right. algorithm or whatnot, right? But so, and so that, that was sort of like making me like uh, angry back in the days because mm -hmm. this is the data I'm going to have to work on for my PhD, right? I mean, you're making things harder for me, right? right? I mean, or whatnot, right? I mean, so anyways, right? I mean, so, but then I, I realized like, look, volume means nothing. Uh, if if this is mm -hmm. not the right data, the right type of data, if quality mm -hmm. is not high enough or whatnot, right? Fast forward. So as you know, mm -hmm. I jumped into the industry, right? And so then I see the same problem here, right? I mean, everybody is like volume, volume, volume. Let's just like throw more hardware at any problem, right? And so I was like, hmm, you guys, are, I mean, mm -hmm. basically, you're not going to make the same mistake again. Like uh, not on my watch, right? I, I mean, so, <laughs> so, so basically, so I was, I was like, okay, fine, right? I mean, for the time being, I understand mm -hmm. how this is an easier solution to just like throw more compute right. at a problem, but you have to understand that any right. data set is made of like useful data, useless data, data that can actually destroy your model because that did happen for me in physics, mm -hmm. right? I mean, basically, it was like almost like a untractable problems, like for reestablishing the origin of particles or whatnot, right? Uh, and so eventually, mm -hmm. right, I mean, so I, I kind of like, it was on the back of my mind all the time. Eventually I got my first like very, uh, you know, like massive team to manage. So when I was at Walmart Labs, uh, I inherited basically like several, uh, several initiatives, which, you know, like was not necessarily what I had on my mind when I, when I joined the company, right? Uh, after like mm -hmm. basically like a, a, an acquisition and basically like a, a reorg internally or whatnot, right? And so part of my new team and part of my responsibilities mm -hmm. was basically like a, a data labeling or management of data labeling for uh, the newly or the nascent deep learning initiatives within the department, right? And so now I realize, like, wait yeah. a second. So now you have that problem as well, where you want to operate with volume, but uh, you know, like uh, all of the data needs to be annotated and you're not increasing the budget properly, right? I mean, so basically after that, mm. that, that merge that happened, suddenly we had like a, 10x, 20x, like in terms of data, but the budget, the, the budget increase, I was actually able to negotiate for data labeling, right? I mean, basically it was like insignificant in comparison, right? I mean, so basically it's like, hmm. So now you have this problem that basically 
we actually started not having enough compute as well because uh, Walmart being Walmart is not going to be use AWS mm. for you know like cloud uh, <laughs> for 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 right, trading right, or whatnot, right. right? I mean, so we had our own servers. <laughs> was never enough for the entire team, right? I mean, so basically, like, uh, so I was like, okay, we need to rationalize our understanding of how mm. volume is a necessity or is the way to get. Uh, a proper machine learning model, right? I mean, so basically, like, so I, I started like mm. looking into this concept of active learning, which is basically like the the key or uh, one of the the key proposition of the data prep ops, right? I mean, essentially, which is like uh, dynamically curating, preparing, or curating, or throwing away stuff that doesn't matter, and ordering the data in a way that uh, accelerates the learning process, right? And improving the, uh, the 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 quality of the learning curve, right? Uh, and so you know, like at that point, it's like full on this need like we need to change things i understand i'm probably the first person to experience that pain point in in the industry because i'm i'm running mm-hmm. like the, the this sort of initiatives like data uh data right. labeling data operations for you know like basically um uh, walmart right mm-hmm. uh and so you know like uh you know like i started having like a much clearer idea that you know like uh clearly there's gonna have to be a shift here right so back then i didn't have again that term data prep ops, right? But basically I started like really falling mm. in love deeply with the problem of thinking about the d- data differently, right? After that, like I had mm. a couple more opportunities. In fact, I I left Walmart eventually to start uh, uh, a new role as, uh, you know, like the the, the chief data scientist and the, the head of data science, basically like within um, uh, within uh, Atlassian, right? I mean, so uh, Atlassian right. wanted to get into right. machine learning. So again, similar problems, data to be collected, mm. where do we put this data? Not all data is created equal, right? I mean, how are you thinking about those problems, right? I mean, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm. Uh, I mean, at, at Atlassian, the problem was not necessarily as much on, uh, you know, like data labeling as it might have been like data exposure from like, you know, like a, a different okay. customers or whatnot, right? Uh, eventually, like uh, I, I got a, an offer to join uh, Figure 8. So Figure 8 is usually better known as Crowdflower. So the top mm. data labeling company before Scale AI became Scale AI, right? I mean, so back in right. the days, they were like a, the only true alternative you had to make in Nicole Turk, right? I mean, for uh, data labeling, mm. right? Uh, and so I was like, okay, I joined, but you have to believe in my idea that, you know, like basically in order to scale data labeling, the goal is not so much to scale the labeling process. It's more like to basically like rationalize, the, like, a, you know, like curate a data set. And I truly mm. believe this was, and I still believe this is the right approach, right? Because, uh, you know, like solutions like weak supervision or whatnot are going to give you ways to accelerate data labeling, but it's going to fail at solving the other problems associated to data storage, compute, mm. uh, throwing away potentially harmful data from your process or whatnot, right? I mean, and so uh, so basically I joined, I joined Figure 8 and then uh, Figure 8 was actually like, a, you know, like on the fast track to, to an acquisition. So I did not have the time to fully execute on what I wanted, right? I mean, so basically, like, uh, uh, so eventually it's like, look, there's this massive problem, complete unawareness of this for most people on the market. This is a complicated technology. So basically, like, uh, you know, like, uh, I think this is the right time to, you know, like, spend all of my energy on this or whatnot. The fun fact is I often tell people, like, I'm an accidental entrepreneur. I did not plan to start my own company. It's just like, this problem needs to be solved. I know it. This needs yeah. to happen now because later it's going to be too late, right? I mean, so I eventually made the mm. decision to start Alectio, right? I mean, and basically, like, go in that direction, right? I mean, so ever since then, 
you've seen me everywhere talk about like you know like a uh, data yeah. the like data volume is not the solution in fact people talk mm -hmm. about data quality i like to bring this with like a data quality there is structural data quality and there is functional data quality which means that it's not just about like having properly formed data that matters because if you can have perfectly good looking data that actually could carries no uh, informational density right i mean no value to your machine learning model right i mean so so i'm glad that the market is sort of shifting there uh, i'm glad that you know like there are more and more voices basically like uh, expressing themselves on the topic but yeah i mean i think yeah. it's about time the market catch up with the idea <laughs> yeah yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It catches up with you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love that. I mean, it really, it draws a line between, I mean, you, you essentially had the same problem in physics, mm -hmm. right? And so ever since you've just been seeing these different kind of um, applications that the problem has been exacerbating, right? Um, so that actually bridges into a pretty interesting topic that I wanted to cover on real quick. So you have a really interesting perspective on big data, right? And um, as I understand, you left to start Electio in part to solve that problem of big mm -hmm. data. Um, would you mind delving into kind of what you see as the problem with big data and what you think is the solution? Yeah, absolutely, right? I mean, so so it's like, look, it's a, uh, uh, it's a multifaceted problem anyways, right? I mean, so basically like for me, uh, what, so, you know, like basically like, uh, I just like number one, I see big data as brute forcing your way into mm -hmm. a machine learning model, right? I mean, so basically like, uh, uh, you know, like, uh, Again, as I said earlier, I think I mentioned that already, right? I mean, so when you look at any training data set, regardless of its quality, you're always, always going to have like this sort of like free components where you have useful informative data, you have neutral data, which I call useless data, and then you have what I call harmful data, right? All of this comes with like different flavors because in many circumstances, what is harmful data might be harmful if you inject that information early in the training process, while it might not be harmful later on or whatnot, but at a high level, if you look at a specific record, that record can bring you information. It might not change the outcome of the model, right? I mean, if you look at uh, what you inject like little by little, or it might make the model worse, right? So there is actually like an entire new conversation that just occurred in the past few weeks on uh, model collapse, right? I mean, basically like how, you know, like, uh, you know, like uh, basically an extrapolation of like how in fact, like, uh, you know, like you can have effects where uh, the model eventually like uh, becomes bad because you injected like a, you know, like a, I'm going to say like stale data, right? I mean, not something that doesn't really carry information, mm -hmm. right? Uh, there is a concept which has been like very well known to researchers for a while, which is not super popular. I, I don't see a lot of people talking about this called catastrophic forgetting. So catastrophic forgetting is something that happens when you dynamically train the model, like online learning style. And basically like a, mm -hmm. at some point, your model starts understanding really well concepts or let's say your class or whatnot, right? And suddenly you add this little bit of additional data and then the model forgets. Mm -hmm for the benefit of something else, right? I mean, so basically like you, uh, your okay. model understands what a dog is and then you add a little bit more data, it suddenly forgets dogs to the benefit of cats, right? And so when, mm -hmm. when this okay. happens, you have this sort of instabilities or whatnot, right? And so this happens, like it, it's very hard to control. It's practically impossible to the day to predict that by injecting this additional data, uh, you're actually going to kill your model, right? I mean, so this is what harmful data actually right. means, right? So the concept of just like, grab the data, throw that into a model and just pray for it to you know, like go whatever way it's supposed to go. Like, it's just like, a, it's just like what you do when you don't know what to do, what else to do, right? 
at the same time, I'm going right. to say this is very natural in many ways because back to when I started in industry, right? I mean, so basically, like, um, uh, collecting data was not such an easy process, right? I mean, so basically, like, in fact, my okay. first job uh, in an ad tech company, like, uh, basically in the industry was like, a, uh, you know, like, a, we want to do something with machine learning. We believe we have data. No, we don't, right? I mean, basically, you don't have a proper data collection pipeline or whatnot, right? Okay, figure right. it out, right? Uh, and then basically like so what i did is like i established we're gonna collect xyz i worked on instrumentation basically like a uh, uh, forming like basically like proper schema for you know like the data we wanted to use for training later on three months pass by we collect data and then i build a model on it and i'm like shoot i forgot to collect like two three features which would have been instrumental for this model to perform well right i mean so and at that point mm -hmm. there was no going back right i mean because basically it's like okay i'm gonna have to make the model work for that specific data set right and there is no other way around right fast forward with mm -hmm. better hardware with uh, mm. every single one of us having a phone on there, you know, like pockets or whatnot, like collecting right. data happens overnight, right? I mean, so basically like a, uh, in sh like shorter, like basically like a shortly put, uh, collecting data is not the bottleneck anymore. It used to be 10 years ago, right? Mm. So now right. this approach where whatever data you have, you have to make it work with, it doesn't exist anymore, mm -hmm. but we're biased, right? I mean, so people like me, like uh, people right. who started their careers like uh, five, 10 years ago, right? I mean, basically they're gonna come with the same mm -hmm. kind of like approach where uh, I need to make the model work for the data, right? And so basically this big data approach right. is sort of like collect whatever you can, feed that into the model and, and expect great results with it, right? Now, a lot of people, right. including like, uh, you know, like uh, Andrew Carpati, I think was one of the early speakers on that topic as well, like back in 2018, like he gave a very interesting talk uh, multiple times on the topic of, you know, like uh, the necessity to invest time on getting the data set right by cleaning, optimizing, mm. annotating the right way and whatnot, right? I mean, so basically like, a, uh, and I think like he, he actually spoke to the fact that uh, by spending like X number of hours uh, on optimizing the data as opposed to the model, he would get like a, a, a per, like, you know, like a not necessarily double digit, but like at least like a high single mm -hmm. digit improvement on the model where by improving the model, they, like he would just get like, you know, like a, an additional like a 0.1% in performance, right? I mean, and so basically like, this is this is what mm. my shift also comes from, right? I mean, in fact, when right. he was talking about this, like finally somebody's talking about this as well, right? I mean, so, uh, and anyways, right, I mean, so basically, like, it goes with, like, really the understanding that the, look, at a high level, I'm going to say this, right, I mean, so, um, we collect data, and at some point earlier in the life, uh, in the life of data science, like, data was practically synonymous with information, that's not the case anymore. Just mm -hmm. look at, you know, like, and, you know, like the fact that the internet is full of repeats and retweets and, you know, like, uh, mm -hmm. now synthetically generated data that might be, you know, like impoverished in information or whatnot, right? I mean, basically, like, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's all changing. So now, information is a subset of the data set, right? I mean, so you used to have this relatively information-rich data sets. Now you have a small amount of information in a ton of data, right? And so the shift that's necessary now is like, because data science and machine learning is the science of transferring information from a data set 
into a model, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, basically taking care of that sort of like a surplus of, uh, you know, like a, uh, useless data, whatnot, that can basically like uh, harm the model or whatnot is, is becoming really key for. And so you're, you are asking for specific impact. Specific impact is like, if you do it that way, there is a financial mm-hmm. cost to it, right? I mean, so basically if we keep going in the direction of big data, right? Uh, you're really not giving a, a, a fair chance for smaller businesses who do not have like large compute, like uh, resources or whatnot to basically like uh, have mm-hmm. a fighting chance in the AI space, right? I mean, so uh, so this was something that was very important to me when I started the company, right? You have the environmental mm-hmm. impact. You have the, you know, like basically like the data labeling problem where, believe it or not, but if you had to basically like label all of the data, even with the automation we have today, uh, all of us would have to stop everything else and pretty much spend all of their time like uh, tuning, fine-tuning, labeling data, reviewing automatically generated labels or whatnot, right? I mean, so basically, like, so there is a real, like, a shortage of of resource, right? Uh, And, uh, yeah, I mean, basically, like, there is, like, the exposure of the data. And fundamentally, for me, the bigger problem that's coming now is, like, if you don't have the proper data, and when I say proper data, I hate to use the term data quality because data quality is sort of a limitation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like just like stating okay. that, you know, like uh, you just need to fill the missing records, the missing fields or whatnot. It's much more than that, right? And it's so basically mm-hmm. like, I, again, I like to split the data quality narrative into data quality. So is the data that you currently mm-hmm. have like uh, uh, the proper format or whatnot, right? But also data value. So is the data that you actually have what the model needs to, you know, like uh, actually learn and become better. Right. right. It's like quantities is not necessarily equate to quality here. Yeah. So for you and, and for Electio, how do you kind of draw a line between useful and harmful yeah. data? That's 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 the billion or trillion dollar question, obviously. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, no. So so basically, but so so here here is the idea like between like uh, behind data prepops, right? I mean, so basically, like so uh, again from everything I explained, right? I mean, so basically, like it's it's a perfectly natural like market adoption that there has been until now such a ridiculous focus on the models, right? I mean, so basically. Like a, right. in fact, usually I like to say like a, we we all want to go to the moon. Uh, we focused on building rockets, but the role of uh, of chemistry mm. in this for the creation of the right fuel that works in conjunction right. with the rocket is is often like uh, mm. you know like uh, underrated, right? Because best best I case see. scenario, your rocket might not you know like go as fast as you like, right? Uh, you know like mm-hmm. the mid situation is like maybe it doesn't take off. Worst case scenario, guess what's going to happen? You're going to have an explosion, right? I mean, so basically, like, so that's, I think it's a sort of a, a nice, a nice analogy here, right? I mean, so, so now I think like we're sort of like, we need to see this shift on the market where mm. the same amount of effort we have put in building those outstanding models. And uh, obviously, like, uh, mm. we're, we're experiencing something really like a historic change, right? I mean, on basically like what, we're capable of doing with a generative AI and LLMs and whatnot, right? I mean, so very exciting times to be uh, to be alive, right? I mean, so uh, uh, at the same time, mm-hmm. now there needs to be a shift towards like, okay, now we need the same amount of science, effort, sophistication to go into data preparation, right? And so basically, like, so my premise mm-hmm. is that, uh, look, we can use, we should use science to actually solve that problem. That's what data prep ops is, right? I mean, so you could basically like uh, mm. focus like data prep ops as being 
ML ops for data centric AI. So data centric AI is like uh, reacting to or improving a model, not by changing the model itself or tuning the model itself, but tuning the data. Right. Uh, in fact, I think we should start talking about data tuning as well, which is kind of like a weird term for me mm -hmm. to use as a as a data scientist. But like, I, I hope you understand what I uh, I mean there. Right. I mean, so uh, so the key one of the key ideas behind this is like a, a something based on a concept called active learning. So active learning is a semi-supervised technique where you take a little bit of data, you prepare that data, you train your model, and then you assess basically. So the trick of active learning is like you take that model in its current state. So when you take a little bit of data, mm -hmm. the, the state of the model is nothing good, right? I mean, it's just like, it's just, it's the right. state, state of the model, right? You take that model and you infer mm -hmm. on the reminder of your data. So all the data you haven't used yet, okay. right? Uh, you're basically going to, you know, like sort of like run predictions on it and you don't have the mm -hmm. ground truth because you haven't prepared the data yeah. yet. However, you can try to guess whether you believe what the model is saying or not, right? I mean, so basically mm -hmm. like the vanilla active learning does the following. So takes a little bit of data. Let's say you have 100,000 uh, records, pictures mm -hmm. of like cats and dogs and whatnot, right? You you take, a, you take a first batch of like a thousand pictures. So you call that a loop, right? I mean, so you prepare, like you annotate the data, you feed that into your model. You're going to mm -hmm. have a pretty bad model. That's, there's no question. To it, right? I mean, so, but then you take that model, right. you apply on the 99,000 pictures that remain, which you don't have ground truth with, uh, or for basically like the, mm -hmm. you, you look at the predictions. You don't know if something that was predicted as a cat actually is a cat, but you have metadata associated to that prediction. And in specifically, like the vanilla active learning basically looks at the confidence score. So if you have a low okay. confidence score, you can basically say, you know, like, uh, I believe that uh, the model doesn't actually know. It seems to be hesitant about its own, own perspective or whatnot, right? I mean, and basically what you do is like, okay, I'm going to pick like the records that were predicted with the least amount of data. The beauty of this is like the model sort of like almost like begs for what he needs to see next. The problem with this approach is that you have to believe the confidence scores, which is actually very mm. difficult with deep learning models. And the deeper the model, the more likely you have to have like a, a Dunning-Kruger syndrome kind of problem where the model actually mm. uh, overestimates uh, the the confidence of its predictions, right? I mean, so so right. one of the beautiful areas of research within data prep ops is actually like coming up with like machine learning driven processes to basically not just look mm -hmm. at the confidence score, but look at everything you can look at, lo including the state of the right. model, the value of the parameters, the stability of the parameters of our, because like you, you keep repeating that process over and over again, right? I mean, so you can look at actually a ton of things, right? And, and look at this in the lens of like, okay, can I build a machine learning model or a reinforcement learning approach to basically uh, guide my training process, right? In fact, there is actually an area which we are exploring as well, which is defining which data is not currently in your data set that you should generate or collect okay. more of, right? I mean, so basically if you start associating, like by using causal inference, for instance, you could basically say that, you know, like a... Uh, it seems my model stopped learning when X happened to my data set, when I ran out of cats, right? I ran out of dogs right. or uh, after only white dogs were already in my data set or whatnot, right? I mean, so basically based on this, you can sort of like uh, intelligently feed mm. the right information into your, your model, right?
Gotcha. Gotcha. So it's not just quantity for quantity's sake. It's basing, you know, how you should expand these data sets on what mm-hmm. is actually yeah. needed. To it's get a it's, it's a huge, it's a sense. huge opportunity as well because, like, uh, according to OpenAI and Sam Altman himself, basically, like, we're going to run out of data by like. 2025 2026 right i mean so basically people oh, have wow. pro- like people have proposed synthetic data generation but they, there's sort of a chicken and egg problem mm-hmm. because the information that lives in model that you can use to generate typically is the information which you grabbed mm-hmm. from the training data right i mean so there's no free lunch kind of situation mm-hmm. right i mean you cannot generate new information right. that easily right uh and yeah so basically like so mm-hmm. i i'm a huge believer in like this sort of like smarter approach where uh, you know, like rather than just like throwing the kitchen sink at this, right? Because like if you use mm-hmm. regular synthetic data generation, you have the mother of all big data problems, right? I mean, basically, like you can generate pretty much anything, right? I mean, and so uh, when right. when you know, like basically, like I think it's like very important that we start thinking about like, okay, mm-hmm. what do we generate? Does it matter? Does it bias the model? Uh, is it respecting mm-hmm. the privacy of? the people right. whose you know like data was used as a training data set to generate that data i see i see i, I read an article recently about um model degradation mm-hmm. yeah. right and i think you may have mentioned that's that right. earlier but is that kind of a consequence of of using that synthetic but data for, for me, uh, in part for me it's, it's, a, it's an interesting conversation right i mean because like uh, it's it's not that there are no solution to this but like at this point basically like if you go back to my comment that uh really data science machine learning is about transferring information from a data set into uh into a model and into the weights and the biases of a specific model, right? Uh, basically, like a, um, it, it's a matter of science. Scientifically speaking, it's a problem of entropy, right? I mean, so basically, like that information, you're not going to generate new information. You can generate like new, like flavors of that information, if you will, right? I mean, mm-hmm. which might have some value when you retrain the model or whatnot, right? But so, for example, if your original data set is lacking some representation, let's say uh, we're talking about uh, language data and, you know, like uh, people from a specific ethnicity, a specific age, a specific like uh, location or whatnot are not represented in this data set, it's not going to automatically right. be able to generate data with that representation, right? I mean, so it's, it's actually mathematically right. speaking, it's a problem of a vector of space, right? I mean, so basically, like you are mm. only representing and representing differently, basically that original information, right? So, if you actually believe that you can reinject that information to like force the model to become better or whatnot, like I think, you know, like uh, you should probably think about this like more in a, with a scientific lens, right? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I, uh, you know, and I think it's a, a burgeoning field now that we have kind of. Um, reach this point where people are interacting with, um, you know, LLMs on a daily basis, kind of like at scale, but questioning what, uh, you know, consciousness and sentience and how we kind of form our ideas comes from is is kind of this question that I think is inherent there, right, that we don't necessarily have a full scientific answer to. But um, the concept of like stealing like an artist, I think is very relevant there, right, where, um, yeah, when you look at, you know, artists, creatives in, in the human yeah. space, yeah. we are taking all of these bits of information and formulating yeah. something unique by combining them, right? But it's still pulling from the source information. And it sounds like LLMs kind of function similarly yeah. there. Gotcha. Very cool. So um, kind of moving forward there, could you tell us uh, some of your, you know, predictions, thoughts uh, on kind of where uh, AI and machine learning are heading and, uh 
you know, that can be in the context yeah. of data prep ops or not just yeah. up to you. Well, I mean, it so basically, like, so my predictions, like, in terms of, like, the people working on, you know, like, basically, like, machine learning. So basically, like, uh, I absolutely believe that, like, you know, like, I had to believe that all along that eventually people would mm -hmm. be, would get to, like, data-centric AI and the importance of, like, tuning and right. uh, improving data sets or whatnot. So more and more people are using the term, you know, like it's becoming like, a, you know, like mm -hmm. both data-centric AI and data prep ops, right? I mean, so more and more companies are getting the space. So for me, like it's a huge win, right? I mean, I, I hope I contributed to getting like a, you know, like partially the narrative to oh, where it needs to be, right? I mean, definitely like a, the the booming of LLMs played a big part because, you know, like a, mm -hmm. now we're entering, like what, what I, should, I think is pretty interesting nowadays is like we sort of like, we all thought we were going to make a proof point for AI with autonomous driving, right? And so I was among the people who were always scared that there was going to be another AI winter because, uh, you know, like uh, the original AI winters were coming a lot from people who were over-promising, under-delivering on what AI could do, right? I mean, and so basically, like, so, uh, you know, like, uh, there, there are lots of, like, you could claim Elon Musk with Tesla sort of did that, right? I mean, basically, like, so mm. so there was definitely a risk. And unbeknownst to all yeah. of us, basically what happened is, like, okay, this, you know, like, uh, solidification in the belief of AI and uh, the potential of AI actually came from generative AI, right? I mean, so which was not necessarily a move like none of us would have uh, would have forecasted, right? I mean, so, but anyways, right? I mean, mm. so we are at, uh, you know, like the crossroads now where companies are like, oh, that works. AI is worth investing in, right? I mean, so basically like now I, I think everybody wants a piece of it, right? At the same time, because of the current market conditions, uh, and the fear for recession and whatnot, right? I mean, I think people also realize that they want to do AI, but they want to do AI without uh, breaking the bank, essentially, right? I mean, so basically, like, you look at right. any company, they're sort of, like, in this mode where, okay, I want to do AI, but, like, how do I make sure that I control my cost, even in the case of, of scalability mm. and whatnot, right? I mean, so I actually call that the AI, like, uh, um, the, the AI chasm, or crossing the AI chasm, right? I mean, so basically, mm. like, uh, uh, yeah. we, we've long talked about, like, how ML ops was basically, like, helping companies go from a prototype of a model to basically something that would function in production. Nowadays, the problem is like having something mm -hmm. in production that can basically like uh, stay up and running and update itself uh, without having right. to like retrain the model from scratch every single time, right? I mean, so, so anyways, right? I mean, so this is That's definitely like from an operational perspective where the shift is going to go, right? I mean, so doing machine learning like uh, uh, in cost efficient ways, right? I mean, which is going to like data prep ops is going to contribute to, but it's not the only solution for sure, right? Mm. In terms of like AI as a tool for humankind, like look, I think we see what's happening, right? I mean, basically like the augmentation of humans or whatnot, right? I mean, so basically like uh, people will tell you like uh, how we're not going to be replaced by an AI, but we're going to be replaced by somebody using an AI. My position is like, <laughs> I don't think anybody gets replaced. I think uh, just like for you know, like the industrial revolution, jobs are going to change, right? I mean, so basically yep. it's like, a, you know, like whether or not, like uh, I think, um, in fact, like I'm not, you know, like basically like you, you can think of like writers, artists using AI to basically like generate uh, new new content or, or whatnot, right. right? I'm thinking about also like creating more jobs for supporting AI, right? I mean, so basically like uh, mm. AI product managers, you know, like uh, 
AI customer success people, right? I mean, basically like a, uh, in the space of robotics, like more people who can maintain robots, retrain robots, basically like this sort of things, right? I mean, so I'm not even sure because like even stating that, you know, like, a, uh, you know, like basically like we're going to have the same rules, but we're going to be using AI for, for, you know, like basically like accomplishing right. the same task, I, th I think it's sort of like not quite what, what I see is happening right now. No, I, I think we're definitely aligned in our, in our thinking there. I, uh, I recently wrote um, an article that was kind of comparing historically the, the trajectory of the typewriter from a, a marketing yeah. perspective and a market position standpoint to AI, right? And how uh, if you had guessed that all of the roles that pre-existed the typewriter would just be augmented yeah. by the typewriter, you'd be wrong, right? Because it invented uh, you know, a, a number of jobs that, that ended up replacing those jobs, but instead of it you know, just being like, these jobs are gone, people re-specialized, right? Um, and I think another piece there that's kind of similar to AI is the uh, the individual value and, and early adopter, right? You mentioned crossing the chasm. I think that's a very apt uh, metaphor here because I, I think AI does still have to cross the chasm, right? I mean, I think that the buzz that we've seen today is is just kind of like the the first shots, right, of, of the huge uh, transition. But still, there needs to be a transition to providing massive organizational value. And, and I would say that... Overall, we're not quite there. Yeah. So it definitely seems like data prep ops is going to be a big piece of that yeah. puzzle, making organizations, you know, able to move quickly uh, when it comes to ML yeah. and AI and being able to instrument yeah. it uh, efficiently. Yeah. Now, for, for, um, so all for, that being for said, me, like just to build on top of this, right? I mean, so basically, like, I think, yeah, I think, yeah. you know, like people are like, AI is here. So AI is absolutely here, right? I mean, so basically, like, I'm really happy that there's mm. uh, there's been this market validation, right? Uh, at the same mm. time, generative AI is such a small piece of what we can do, right? I mean, so basically, like, so in right. fact, like, uh, I had this fun conversation with somebody, like, uh, a couple of weeks back where I believe that AGI is really, like, a automatically generated intelligence. So AGI, right? I mean, so mm. basically, like, so the idea is, like, instead of, like, AI in the box, which is what you could call generative AI, like pre-trained models and whatnot, right? I mean, so don't get me started on basically like the fact that intelligence requires like weights to be, you know, like basically what makes us intelligent, like properly is like a, uh, none of our weights or neurons are fixed, right? I mean, and basically like, right. so basically that gives us right. the ability to grow, rethink, change our minds, right? I mean, basically like, a, mm -hmm. uh, and it, it's not just about like feeding new information, it's also about like a adapting right i mean basically to the situation right i see the same thing with uh, with llms with like a uh, generative ai so you have this like super smart basically like a uh, ai in a box sort of thing but this is not going to evolve it needs to be you know like basically like uh, it can answer your question or whatnot right where i see the future is like in any circumstances, you need external help for making a decision on the fly based on, you know, mm -hmm. like a, a very little data that you have or whatnot and building this like on the fly AI assistance, right? I mean, and not in the sense that we're right. talking about AI assistance today, right? I mean, so basically like a, imagine mm -hmm. having like a, you know, like a, somebody assessing like basically like a, the, the gardener deciding whether they should cut a tree or whatnot, right? I mean, so right now they're using their expertise mm -hmm. like, oh, this tree seems diseased. I don't think it's it's worth saving or whatnot. And so imagine like the world where uh, that person pulls their phone up, right? I mean, basically takes a picture of that tree and basically like a, there is a process behind that automatically mm -hmm. creates an app that uh, evaluates similar situations, compares like basically like a establishes like the end-to-end -end, like app and so three seconds later you have this app with like 
now you can apply this app to any of the trees in the in the yard, right? And basically it's telling you cut or do not cut, right? I mean, so basically, and so this has mm -hmm. nothing to do with LLMs, right? I mean, or, or generative AI. Right. Yeah, it's... Uh... I, I love that, right? It's like um, the number of applications, not just of generative AI, but of all of the other kind of breakthroughs that are, we're simultaneously hitting with ML and with AI are, are all kind of coming to fruition uh, at similar times, right? So I, I'm very interested to see kind of how that pans out. Um, I do, uh, we're running a little bit tight on time, but I do want to just real quick uh, talk about kind of your experience with Electio and how you've, you know, uh, enjoyed being a founder and CEO, what it's been like. Look, look uh, it's, like, know, it's like, it's uh, like, as I said, like, I'm an accidental entrepreneur, but like, I'm, I, I'm a person <laughs> who enjoys living on the edge of what I can do, right? I mean, so basically, like, so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very much into like, a, I, I often say like being comfortable with the uncomfortable, right? I mean, so basically, like, in fact, the mm -hmm. moment I'm not, I'm comfortable with the situation, I get bored, right? I mean, so basically, like, a, so, so, you know, like, a basically, like, a, which sort of experience is like, okay, I don't want to start a company let's do it right <laughs> but like uh, so so i think in many ways like i have like this is like the natural like entrepreneurial mm -hmm. spirit right look the the story is like it's been an amazing experience so far it's been like uh, ups and downs and you know like uh, days of doubts and fear and you know mm -hmm. like uh, arguments with other stakeholders and days where you're like i'm making you know like uh, such a difference in where AI is going at and I'm proud of how you accomplish or whatnot, right? I mean, so basically like, it's a, you, you have to embrace it like the good and the bad, like all together, right? And just remember mm -hmm. like, a, mm -hmm. I think one thing I've really learned and developed like a, uh, since I've started Electio is really like, a, you know, like the ability to say like, a, this is horrible, today is a better day. <laughs> I mean, so basically like, a, and so, yeah. I mean, I unfortunately yep. started a company like just like months before COVID started and then you had to start oh, like yeah. basically like uh, running teams remotely which I was not used to doing mm. and basically like with you know, like the market changes where large companies were pushing talent I had to go international mm -hmm. right I mean basically and then you know like uh, oh, wow. uh, now like basically like shifts in market or whatnot let's be honest mm. it's not trivial yet for a solo woman founder to basically like, get funding get support get credibility or whatnot right i mean so it's like uh yeah mm -hmm. i mean uh yeah i think it's you know like i mean whoever wants to start this is like it's worth it but like uh you have to be the beyond greedy right i mean to, to make it happen 100 100 percent. um so to to that point do, do you feel that your your technical background and the fact that you are like a pioneer in this field has has helped with that that aspect. Of course. Of with, I mean, obviously, <laughs> yeah, I, I would imagine. But just like with the kind of inherent discrimination that comes with, you know, being a woman. But in, it's in it's it's like you know, like my, my my sort of like so when I started, right? I mean, so basically, like I had this question of like, uh, I I want to start this. I had no, you know, like basically, some people start solopreneurs because they want to be in charge of their own destiny. There was a little bit of that, but I generally like already like considered like having like a, uh, you know, like a co-founder or whatnot. I was so early with this idea, nobody would really eat, right? I mean, so basically, I felt this is I, something I had to do anyways regardless of whether or not i find uh, a co-founder right uh and uh mm -hmm. yeah i mean basically like uh, uh you know like to some extent you would say like there are challenges associated to like our uh, uh vcs and investors not necessarily understanding mm -hmm. why you're doing things 
that you're doing, right? I mean, so basically you right. cannot expect like a, uh, the typical VC to basically just say like, oh, this sounds like something that's going to be needed like three, four, five years from now, right? I mean, so uh, right. so you have you right. have to meet the right people who are like, look, I have no idea why you're doing this. I have no idea what you're building, but I feel this is going somewhere. <laughs> I mean, so basically like, a, and so unfortunately, like a, when you're a solo founder, when you're an immigrant, when you're a woman, it's it's harder to get to get to that, right? Yeah, well, all the more impressive that you've made it. But um, <laughs> of course, of course. But but all that being said, uh, what is one really memorable or like significant moment that you've had so far in your journey as a founder? Well, I mean, it's like I have memorable moments, good and bad, like almost every week, right? I mean, so basically. <laughs> <laughs> No, I feel, I feel like it's it's like a, it's it's a whole journey, right? I mean, so basically, like I would say, like on the bad side, like a, it was a defining moment, the moment like COVID, like because like I started the team, like I I started this mm-hmm. brilliant but junior team in the valley, right? I mean, where basically like a my like because like I was you know like basically like I did not go for that uh, crazy like fundraise in the beginning. You bootstrap with whatever you have, right? I mean, so so my trick was I'm gonna hire like talented, hungry, uh, straight out of college people who I'm going to mentor, right? Very closely or whatnot. Yeah. The first few months were amazing because we were all in the office. We had this amazing times like in front of a you know like a whiteboard, like a, a drawing. Mm-hmm. architectural diagrams and equations and having fun together and then somebody everybody like us suddenly everybody has to go home right and so i had no idea how to manage uh, an entire mm-hmm. team remotely i had remote teams before but basically like it's a completely ball game like especially with a team that i was assuming i would be able to mentor and interact with on a day-to-day basis right. so uh, that that was a really tough time for me, right? I mean, so basically, like being a founder, you do what you have sure. to do. You learn new skills. You, you, you rise and shine, mm-hmm. right? I mean, then uh, you go, you go through that, right? I mean, so, uh, anyways, right? I mean, so basically, like, uh, I mean, recently, like, obviously, like, uh, uh, the market is getting tighter. Like, basically, like, uh, like any MLOps company, like, basically, like, we had customers who didn't make it through, you know, like the the recent mm-hmm. times or whatnot. So it's constantly like looking for for right. new customers or whatnot. I would say like. The the part, the part of entrepreneurship I like and I dislike the most is like having to do everything on your own, right? I mean, because like you have to be like the yeah. the marketing person, the evangelist, the, the fundraiser, right. the the person who establishes yep. the culture, like establishes the partnership or whatnot. So some days when everything goes fine, it's like, oh, I've learned so much. I've learned so many things or whatnot. Some <laughs> other days it's like, I can't do this anymore, right? I mean, so, totally. Yeah. Totally. Well, I... I uh... I appreciate you, you know, taking on all those hats. It's definitely not an easy thing to do, right? But you're here. We're talking. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Um, so I'll ask you one last question, which is um, for, you know, people who are aspiring to make a mark in mm-hmm. AI and, and machine learning, what advice would you give them maybe if they're starting their yeah. career right now? No, I, I mean, look, like something. And so uh, at the risk of coming across as being a little bit like unpopular nowadays, right? I mean, so it's like, yeah. it's it's just like sheer, like at least at the beginning, like hard work, sacrifice, mm-hmm. and you know, like uh, basically like so, you know, like, uh, I mean, uh, I, I have the background that I have, so maybe I got it a little bit easier than some people, <laughs> basically, like, uh, getting started or whatnot, but, like, uh, uh, there is no free lunch, right? I mean, so basically, like, you're not going to waltz in in the space and uh, get, like, a crazy salary, a crazy opportunity or whatnot. So 
I did work for companies where I did not relate to their mission, right? Uh, I felt mm -hmm. bored. Uh, I felt frustrated. Uh, I wasn't where I wanted to be or whatnot, right? I mean, so the one thing that I think really made a difference for me is like take everything with an approach of growth, right? I mean, so basically like I do mm -hmm. not like this project. I don't like this job, right? But like basically like I'm gonna, whatever comes out of it, I'm going to learn even if it's a poor experience, right? I mean, in fact, I'm gonna say I learned a lot mm -hmm. from terrible, terrible managers, right? I mean, just by learning what yeah. not to do, right? I mean, so basically like, so mm -hmm. it's just like a, if somebody wants to start their career in AI, AI is obviously a cutting edge field. It's not an easy field. You need to be good at a lot of things. Right. And uh, many times like you have to, you know, like there is no, textbook on like how to get there because like we're all building this together right now right i mean so uh it's not just right. something you can memorize or whatnot right i mean so be ready for you know like the disappointments and the hard knocks and whatnot right i mean so basically like a, mm -hmm. i say that as an entrepreneur but i do say that as a data scientist as well <laughs> right no absolutely it's a fantastic answer well, well, Jennifer, thank you so much for uh, coming on. It's been fantastic talking to you. I have been familiar with your work for, for a while uh, through LinkedIn, and I've just been really uh, impressed by it. So it's really amazing yeah, to have you on. Thank you for having um, me. It was very nice talking you, to you. <laughs> oh, likewise, likewise. W would you mind telling everybody where they can find you? Yeah, I mean, so I, I usually, like, for social media, like, I'm mostly on LinkedIn, mm -hmm. right? I mean, so basically, like, uh, I tend to be relatively active on there, right? I mean, so I think the easiest way to reach out to me would be on LinkedIn. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Jennifer, thank you.